When Bernice said, listen, I just want you to remember that the reason we can't tell my father happy birthday is because he was murdered. It reminded me that there are people, maybe even people in your own family, who are alive, who are actually older than Dr. King. Um, there's a brilliant actress named Cicely Tyson, and Ava DuVernay posted this photo of Cicely Tyson, and she's 95 and is, and is as beautiful and regal as she's always been. She was older than Dr. King. Like Dr. King could literally, he could have been the guest speaker today. The college could have given him an honorary degree and said, Dr. King, we are so glad to have you back on campus 60 years after the first time you were here. But he was taken from us. And I'm, I've been grappling all day with what does that mean? What did we miss? What did we miss because of his murder? And when I saw Bernice write that on social media, write it on Twitter, what did his family miss? What moments, what lessons? I do wonder where would our country be if we had not murdered some of our greatest leaders? We'll never know. And in some ways, because we don't know, it puts the burden back on us to try to be and live what they never got a chance to be or live. I'm not here today necessarily to teach a lesson about Dr. King, but you know, there's so much to say about him. And I release, I have a, I have a daily podcast that I love if you listen to. Today I did a special episode on Dr. King and I played five clips of speeches and interviews that never get played. And people were shocked because the first two that I played were from his I Have a Dream speech. And we have this tendency to say that Dr. King was radical in the first, rather in the last two or three years of his life. And his, his politics did change in 1967 and 1968. But if you actually listen to the whole I Have a Dream speech, it's a revolutionary speech. Now there's some clips that they play on commercials before the Super Bowl. And I know, I know the Bears are struggling a little bit, so maybe me saying the word Super Bowl might make you feel some kind of way right now, I don't know. But uh, there's some clips of Dr. King that they play in commercial places and there's some clips that you didn't even know he said that in the speech. He has a whole section where by name he talks about police brutality. And he's talking about, I have a dream that this will be a place, and he literally says the words, police brutality. This will be a place where we don't have police brutality. It's like, no, I didn't, I didn't know he said that. And in the beginning, I played this clip, I want you to hear it for yourself. In the beginning of this speech, he says something that they never play, not in school, definitely not on commercials for car insurance, in other weird ways they often use his voice. He starts talking and quoting some of America's founding documents. And he talks about how beautiful and profound those founding documents are. And he begins to talk about how this country has not lived up to the promises in those founding documents. And he says that, that the country has written black people a bad check. The crowd goes crazy. And he says, the country has written, he says, insofar as the Negro is concerned, has written the Negro a bad check. And he said, the check came back marked insufficient funds. And the crowd goes crazy. And I tried to teach them. I was telling my kids what I'm telling you. I was telling my 13-year-old. And, and listen to what he said to me. He said, Dad, what's a check? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that if you are 13 or younger, you, probably, you may never even know what checks are. And some of you probably don't even know what a bad check is. A check, first, if you don't know, a check is this rectangular piece of paper, and it's attached to your bank account, and you can write an amount on there, and you can write a person or a business's name, 
and you can give them this piece of paper, and when they take it to the bank, the bank will then take that money out of your account. Well, in 1963, when Dr. King said, America has written black people a bad check, the only way you could pay for things in 1963 was cash or check. There were no debit cards, there were no credit cards. So my son was like, Dad, what's a check? <laughs> I realized that we're living in a generation that will know less and less and less what a check is. But if you write a check for a certain amount and give it to somebody, and they go to cash it, and your bank doesn't have that amount of money in your account, it comes back and it has a stamp marked on it that says insufficient funds. And Dr. King said these promises that this country has made are beautiful, but every time we go to cash that check, it comes back to us marked insufficient funds. Do you know what I'm saying? And what we are finding, which is so painful, I think your president said it, that in 1963, as they were on the train from Chicago to DC, the feeling was, which is all about to change. We are, we are moving forward. And they had every reason to believe it. There was also a man who actually took the train from Chicago to the March on Washington. He was a student at the University of Chicago and back then he went by Bernard, his name was Bernard Sanders. He was a young student in Chicago who took the train. Bernard Sanders at the University of Chicago, Bernie Sanders, was the head of the Congress of Racial Equality at the University of Chicago. And he also merged that group with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He protested and demonstrated while he was a student at Chicago, even being arrested. He protested police brutality, he protested uh, unequal housing on campus. He protested, he, they took over the, I, I'm just saying, they took over the president's house. <laughs> they took over the president's office. And, uh, and then in August of 1963, a young Bernie Sanders, he felt the same way actually. Like, I think our nation is turning the corner. And, we don't say it, but the name of the March on Washington was actually the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. We, it's funny that we cut that second part off. We just called it March on Washington. But the, if you look on any poster or any program, it's called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And it's weird how time and people who tell history and shape history it's weird what they erase and what they don't erase. And for a few minutes today, I want to talk to you about some trends that I see in history. I, I am actually a historian by training. My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in history. And I, I think most people think I am a full-time Twitter personality. <laughs> I swear I'm not. And I was at my daughter's high school, this was like four years ago, and we had just moved to New York. And uh, I, had just, I, was, I had just taken a job as the senior justice writer at the New York Daily News. And my daughter was starting her freshman year in high school, and some students at the school recognized me. They were just four or five feet away from me. And this was the first time this has happened, and I've heard it hundreds of times since. And we heard some students whispering, there's at Sean King. <laughs> and I heard it and I thought, why are they calling me at Sean King? Like, my at is not a part of my name. But I learned that social media has this weird effect that when you see people on these platforms, you come to know them through those platforms, that even though I was five feet away from them, they still saw me as like an extension of Twitter. But I, I, I don't have a degree in Twitter. My degree is in history, and I want to teach a history lesson. And uh, I, I did hear that some of you were a little upset that you didn't get a day off today. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the college's decision or, or what that is, but I do wish, I, I had assumed that you had would be a good idea 
Um, it is a holiday, you know, and you do show the value of somebody by taking the day off. I understand days off are tricky, but I'm here to teach you one more history lesson. So I know you've had class today, so bear with me. People are surprised in my presentation when they see this man who looks like maybe he was one of the founders of Lake Forest College. <laughs> he was not a founder of Lake Forest College. Um, people are surprised when they see this picture because they are expecting something very different. This man is Leopold von Ronke, and some people actually call him the father of the study of history. And I actually understand that. I've come to understand why they say that. In the 1800s, you could not yet get a degree in history. There were colleges in the 1800s. We, we won't get into race and class. And there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on in the 1800s. But there were colleges all over the world. And you could get a college degree. But in the 1800s, you could not yet get a college degree in history. People talked about the past, people read books about the past, but history is actually like getting a degree in the past. And there were not yet training programs that taught and trained people on how to teach about the past. So one of Leopold von Ranke's greatest contributions was he established some of the first degree programs where you could go to college and get a degree in history. But his greatest contribution is what I'm here to talk with you about today. This is a serious contribution. He created, this is in the 1800s, he created one of the first detailed timelines of human history. It did not take him a few weeks or a few months or even a few years. It was his life's work from, I don't know what he looked like as a young man. There, there are no portraits of him as a young man. I only know him when he looks like this. But, and, and I know for some of you, people aren't real until they have a Wikipedia page. So he actually was a really good Wikipedia page. That you, when I first started talking about him, he didn't have a great Wikipedia page, but somebody has beefed it up over the years. But he created one of the first timelines of human history. And in January of 2015, I was in grad school getting my graduate degree in history. And I showed up to a class called the Introduction to Historiography. It was a required class in my curriculum. And one of the first pictures she put up was this picture. And she started talking about Leopold von Ranke, and it was so boring. <laughs> and I looked at this picture, I'm just to be completely transparent. I looked at this portrait of von Ranke, and I listened to what she was teaching, and I started asking myself something that many students in this room have asked themselves before. I was in this class, and I asked myself, like, how in the hell is this relevant? to the world I live in, to the world we're facing. And I started like resenting this man. And you have to understand, I gotta go back in time a little bit. That's January of 2015, but in July of 2014, I was do actually doing something altogether different. In July of 2014, I lived in Los Angeles and I was the director of communications for an environmental charity called Global Brand. And I was at my cubicle, and I have a book that comes out in April, and I tell this story in graphic detail in my book. And I was at my cubicle, and I got a Facebook message from a buddy of mine. And he says, Sean, I found something on YouTube. He found something on YouTube. And he said, you got to see it. And I'm at my cubicle, and he describes this. July 17th of 2014, he says, Sean, there is a video of a man being killed, and it's on YouTube. 
Now, since July of 2014, we have seen dozens of videos of men and women and children and other people being killed. But at that moment, in July of 2014, no such video had ever existed. There was no video of Laquan McDonald being killed by a Chicago police officer. It did not yet exist. There was no video of, of, of Tamir Rice being killed on the playground. It had not yet happened. And when he said it, I was thinking, like, oh, that's crazy. Like, now it would just be like Tuesday. Like, it would just be another day if somebody said, there's a video of, literally, I got sent today two videos. I didn't even share them. Like, it's just another day. But on that day, it wasn't. And he described, he said, Sean, there's a video of a middle-aged black man on a street corner in New York. And he says, the, he's telling the police that they've got the wrong person, that he didn't do anything. He asked them to leave him alone. And he says, Sean, an officer comes up behind the man and begins choking him. And my friend, who knows I watch like MMA and stuff, he says, Sean, he choked him like UFC style and begins choking him and wrestles him to the ground and continues to choke him. And he said, Sean, they choked him until he dies right there on the sidewalk. And he said, you can hear the man yelling out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He said, the man yelled it out a dozen times and he dies. And many of you may have this moment, but I didn't really know my colleague. I was kind of new at the company. And I didn't know what people would think if I clicked on that type of video. So I waited until the, the woman who was next to me and the, the guy who was beside me, I waited until they went to lunch and I clicked on that link. And it was just as my friend described, but worse. And I confess, I thought my friend had left something out. Like I thought the man, in my mind, the man must have done something. It shows you where my mind was. Like, we didn't know what we know now. Like I couldn't, okay, because my friend said it was in broad daylight on a street corner and the man choked to death. It was just as my friend described, but worse. We didn't even know the man's name yet. We later came to know the man was Eric Garner. He was a father, grandfather, a husband. He was unarmed, nonviolent. He was choked to death right there on that street. And I literally never worked another day again at Global Green. They continued to pay me for about four more weeks. <laughs> I did not deserve a day of the final two paychecks that they sent me. Uh, I, I know they were about to fire me, but I quit before they could. And I was so shook up by what I saw that I just posted. I didn't even have a public Facebook page. I just had a private Facebook page with my friends and homies and stuff. And I posted a picture of the video. You couldn't even get upload long videos to Facebook. And I posted a picture of the video and I described what I had just seen in, in graphic detail. And I asked on my message, like, can any of you help me with this? Like, this, this can't be, this is not right. And that post went super viral because People who saw it thought, yeah, let's find somebody who can help, and they can find somebody who can help. By the next day, it was on the front page of the paper, it was a headline on the news, we knew his name. By the next week, I came to know his family. I became good friends with his daughter, Erica Garner, who literally died just two years ago, fighting for justice for her father. She wasn't even 30 years old. I came to know his wife, I came to know his mother and his other children, and, and after three weeks of fighting for Eric Garner, I got a text message from a friend who said, Sean, people had seen me fighting for Eric Garner. Sean, there's a live stream video right now. And my friend said, he didn't know, he said there's a neighborhood called Ferguson in St. Louis. He said, Sean, there's a boy that's laying on the street and he's been shot to death. And I clicked on the link there was no, you could not go live on Facebook. There was no Instagram live. The only way to go live was on an app called Livestream. And I clicked on the link and it took me to a website where you could watch the video. And I saw there was a teenage boy on the ground and there was literally literal blood running down the street. And they had draped a sheet over him. And I'll never forget 
he'd only been he'd only been shot and killed for about two hours at that point. But as soon as I kept the video, people were screaming, like, like, uh, not like protesting. I'm talking like uh, like pain. And I heard people screaming, crying. You heard people saying like, "Why are you leaving him in the street like that?" And then people would want to go up and check on him or touch him, and they wouldn't let you go touch him. And there were people that were just screaming bloody murder, and and it was just you realize, like, oh my God, these people knew this person who was laying in the middle of the street. The next day, I learned that a man named John Crawford had been shot and killed by police at a Walmart in Ohio. He was in the papoose section talking to his girlfriend, who had just had their baby. Baby was a one-month-old baby. Unarmed, nonviolent, broke no laws. Somebody had faked a phone call to say that there was an active shooter at the Walmart. And the police assumed it was John. Saw John shot and killed him. As soon as they saw him, shot him. Right? He didn't even know what they, he didn't know why he was shot. And all of a sudden, all over the country, people began protesting. The next day, after we learned about John Crawford, there was a man who many people don't know his story named Ezel Ford, who was shot and killed by police in Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, we realized, like, oh, okay, okay. This seems to be happening, like, every day. There was no database. The Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize for a database they created. We didn't know if people were being killed by police every two to three days or two to three weeks. Comes to find out they were killing people three to 10 times a day, every single day. We didn't know. And we began fighting for justice for Eric Garner's family, Mike Brown's family. And then in November, while we were fighting for all of these families, we learned a 12-year-old boy who was on Thanksgiving break was just a block away from his mother's house playing at the park. Was shot and killed by police. His name is Tamir Rice, sweetest boy ever. A sixth grade, a sixth grade boy who police said they thought was a man. If you saw a picture of him, he is as much a boy as a boy could ever be. Simultaneously, we're fighting for justice for all of these families. And I did something and I said something that I have later really come to regret. I met with all of these I met with the family of Tamir Rice, met with the family of Eric Garner, and I said to each and every one of these families, hold on, hold on, hang in there, don't worry, we're going to get justice for your family. Don't, don't worry, we're going to get justice. And my mind could not conceive what was about to happen. In fact, Almost 1,200 people were killed by American police in 2014. And what I did not know was that not a single one of them would get justice. I don't mean 3% or 2% or 0.2%. I mean 0.00%. What I did not know was that the law and the system was built to ensure there would be no accountability. I don't mean in some cases it was designed for there to be zero accountability. We would soon learn, not that we would get to go to court and lose in court, we would soon learn that they wouldn't even bring charges. We, the families couldn't even conceive that. Not that we would get our chance at justice. Cities were telling these families, families please be patient and let it all play out. And then I was telling families, don't worry, we will get justice. And we got no justice. Not, not a sliver, not a hint, not an aroma of justice, nothing. And in December and January, in December of 2014 and January of 2015, activists all over the country sank into a deep depression because we had marched and protested and demonstrated and sat in and wrote petitions and letters quit our jobs, and got nothing. And it went against something my mother had taught me my whole life. My mother had always taught me, like, Sean, if you work hard and you set your mind on something, it'll happen. And 
I'd be damned. I worked hard and set my mind on it, and it damn sure did not happen. Millions of people all over the country. Were this was the number one issue in the world in 2014. This pre-Trump. This was the main issue in the world. They talked about it all over the world. And I showed up to class with all of that on my mind and in my heart. And I didn't even understand that I was in, that I was in a, a real, like I was clinically depressed. And I, I was questioning everything I had done. And I showed up to class angry at this country, angry at the disappointment that families had experienced, the despair. All of a sudden, people were sending cruel memes and racist statements to these families whose babies had just been killed. And we were like, what? And I show up to class, and she throws this man's face on the screen, and I'm like, oh, oh, this, this, oh, I gotta come learn about this? And I kid you not, I went online, I don't know, maybe, no, are you, are you still in the ad drop period? <laughs> yeah, you're still in that. So I went online, we were in the ad drop period, and I was like, I'm dropping this BS. I don't, I don't need, I was thinking, I don't need this in my life. This is, this is foolishness. And I went to drop it, and at my college, it's like most colleges, there's only like three woke professors at the college. And their classes fill up right away. And so there was no, like the only class that was left was like advanced badminton. And I was like, who the hell took badminton one and needed it so much that there's badminton two? What do you learn in badminton two? <laughs> I wanted out of this class so badly that I told my wife I was dropping out of school for the semester. And my wife was like, yeah, yeah, right, you're dropping out of school. Because the family had already sacrificed for me to be in school. And I was struggling. So I went back, took the class, and I kid you not, the lesson that I am about to share with you changed the way I saw the whole world. And it was not through any ingenuity of my own. I wanted out. I got stuck with this man. And what I learned from him is what I want to teach you. This is Leopold von Rompuy. And without the internet, without computers, without electricity, he built the most detailed timeline of the history of the world. He went all the way back, as far as he knew, to the beginning of human history. And when he died in his 90s, he actually had not even made it all the way through the timeline. He had only made it from, not only, but he had made it from the beginning of human history and he made it to the 1500s. It was his life's work. He spent 40 plus years doing it. I don't know if any of you like zombie movies or like The Walking Dead. I don't mean to say that 1800s were like The Walking Dead, kind of. In that if you ever watch a zombie movie, there are no, like, there's no internet, there's no computers, there's no radio. Like, in a zombie movie, it could be 2020 in a zombie movie, but you literally don't know what's going on in the next town over. Because all the mechanisms that would help you know that don't exist. That's what Leopold von Rommel was up against. When he began building this detailed timeline of human history, he wanted to see if it would help him predict the future. What he wanted to see was, if we lay human history all, if we make it flat and lay it out on a timeline, will we see trends that will help us understand what we are about to deal with? I want to tell you what he found. The first thing that he did was he assembled thousands and thousands of stories. He spent years doing it. He was like a story hunter. He wanted to find resources and facts and documents about every 
every hero, every villain, every politician, every warlord, every, every artist, every inventor, every creator. And so he assembled, this is a picture of 10,000 people. Every time I look at it, I see somebody different, like I see Chewbacca right there. One of my favorites on here is, uh, this is a man named Rerun from What's Happening. And what's sad to me is I know that 90% of you in this room have no idea how cool Rerun from What's Happening really is. But later when, you don't even know what What's Happening is. But when you get a chance, you should go to YouTube and type in Rerun, that's his name, Rerun. And What's Happening and put the word dance. Just a little special treat there for you later when you get a chance to get back to your room, put that in there. So Von Ronke assembled all of these stories and he began doing the hard work of putting them in chronological order. And here's what he expected. How many of you have heard of Charles Darwin? Charles Darwin. Leopold Von Ronke and Charles Darwin, they were contemporaries. They weren't friends but they didn't know of each other and they were doing work at the exact same time. Charles Darwin, he's most known for what? Theory of evolution, right? And what Leopold von Ranke had was what we would call an evolutionary view of history. So he kind of agreed with Charles Darwin. Let's, let's assume for a second that this represents all of human history. Okay, so let's say this corner right here, that's us right now. This moment right here, right now, this corner is us, and let's assume this corner are the early humans. We won't even open up that can of worms. I, I don't know if it was two people or a thousand people, or I don't know if they, but who knows? But whatever works in your mind, these are the early humans, and these are us today. And Von Ronke's assumption was this, was that these humans were a little better than them, and a little better than them, and a little better than them, and better than them, and better than them. Well, the other way to say it would be to say, his assumption was that when he put humanity in chronological order, was that human beings were getting better and smarter, better and smarter, better and smarter. That was his assumption. And it is basically the bedrock theory of evolution, that over time, through competition and survival, human beings, I don't, I don't mind whatever noise he makes, it's just fine with me, okay? I got five kids, and so if he wants to giggle a little bit, it doesn't, I just, want you, I just saw you panic, when he made the noise, I just want you to know that doesn't bother me at all. As a matter of fact, I highlight him more than everybody else in the room. Kids are wonderful. Kids are wonderful and have not yet learned uh, so much of what I'm about to teach. And so he can, if he wants to giggle and snicker, that's just fine with me, all right? So Von Rocky thought when we put humanity in chronological order, it's going to show them getting better and better. And so he did it. This is just a map of the history of London going back thousands of years. And Von Rocky did this for the whole world. He put world history in chronological order, event by event, moment by moment. And when he did it, what he found was that humanity did not look like this. Human beings were not getting better and better and better and better and better. What he found when he put it in chronological order, it shocked him. What he found was that chronologically, sometimes human beings were amazing, and I don't mean for a day. We live in a period of human history where it's hard to believe that humanity could just be pretty good. Like, that's not, that seems like a stretch. I even have people push back on me because now that idea is so hard for us to fathom that there could be a world that is rather decent Von Ronke found periods of human history, with very few exception, that people were relatively peaceful, respected borders and boundaries. I don't mean Garden of Eden. 
But he found periods of human history where there was no famine and no war. And then all of a sudden, it would come crashing down. And they would go to the deepest, ugliest places. Not chronologically either. They would, they would be great and then worse. And then they would get a little better. And then they would collapse into something just unimaginable to even consider. And then humanity, Barnaby found, would scratch and claw itself and get its head above water only to come down here to, like, the Holocaust or the transatlantic slave trade. It's like, and Von Rocky was like, damn, you were here. Why do you keep going down here? You learned. You learned how to do it. And then you started buying and selling humans. And then humanity would scratch and claw itself back up and go back down. What Von Rocky found, in essence, and this is so important, what he found was that he had confused the steady improvement of technology with the steady improvement of humanity. What Von Rocky found was that over time, our gadgets are always getting better. Just think about your phone. As soon as you buy it, it sucks. <laughs> as soon as you buy it, the commercial is already out for the better one. You're like, you could have put that camera on my new one. They just saved that. They had that camera built before they sold you your phone. But they need you to buy the new one. I dropped, this is six years ago. I was still living in California, and I had taken my daughter to her first day of, I have four, I have four daughters and a son. And I had taken my daughter to her first day of a new middle school. We had just moved to California, and um, I was so nervous. It was a new, California's like another country. And if you've traveled the world, you'll come to understand it. The United States is like eight or nine countries. Most places around the world chop a country up in more pieces than we've done. And California, culturally, uh, uh, the, the, from, from weather and geography, is very much like a different country. And so I drop her off at school, and I say to my daughter, I said, listen, if you need anything, call me. And she looked at me, I kid you not, and said, Dad, I'll call you. But why are you putting this thing on your face like this? <laughs> and I thought, I thought for a minute, like my brain had glitched. And I thought for a minute, like, what is she saying to me? And I realized, I just said, I said, just go on, go on. I just call me if you need something. And as I drove away, I realized that the history of the phone, if you just think of this as the history of the phone, when I was a kid, there were no cell phones. And there's, in fact, when I was a young kid, there was only one phone in the whole, the whole family, everybody had one phone. And it was on the wall in the kitchen. And it had a long, curly cord. And I had to explain this to my kids later, too. My kids said, Dad, Dad, why do you say, did you die over the night? And I was thinking, what a dumb question. <laughs> and then I realized they did not have my experience that when I was a child, there was a phone on the wall and you had to dial a number. There was a circle with printed numbers and you had to dial. And my kids were like, that's, that's weird. <laughs> like, that was their whole, like I tried to like teach it to them like it was deep and I'm like, yeah, that's weird, Dad. <laughs> and I realized that over just my life, if you look at how much the phone has changed, that literally, I now like prefer to watch TV on my phone. Like it's like my primary way of watching, it's not even TV. I don't even watch TV, I watch phone. <laughs> if you think about it, you don't watch TV, you watch phone, that's not a TV, it's a phone. And so if you just think over how much technology, technology has changed, what Von Rocky found is that he could look at 10,000 years of human history, or a this could be a thousand years, this could be a hundred years, it could be a year, and that from the beginning of the year to the end, the technology was all 
always getting better. The computer was getting faster. It was getting lighter. Whatever it was, he looked at the history of medicine. He looked at the history of transportation. For 10,000 years in human history, to get from one part of the country to another could be a life's journey. Literally, I was in Charleston, South Carolina this morning. There was a period in 1857 that to get to, from Charleston to Illinois might take you a month and cost you your life. Like, that's how much technology changes. But Von Rocky found that human history evolves like humanity moves like this, technology moves like this. Let me give you some examples. Then we'll take some questions. <clears throat> if human beings are getting better and better and better and better and better, if this is the beginning of human history and this is us today, how do we explain this? Does anyone know what this is? What is it? It's a ship, as you said, it's a slave ship. You can see this actual document, and, and my prayer for you is that you go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. It's a brilliant, beautiful place, painful, but also wonderful, and they have this document. Let me tell you, let me position it a little differently. Yes, that's an image of a slave ship, but this is actually a business plan. This was a man's business plan. A man created this document to show investors that he could fit more human beings that he had taken from Africa, he could fit more than his competitors. And so he's showing, look at how many human beings I can fit. He even has human beings laying between the human beings. He even has room for human beings right here. This is a business plan. And if we're getting better and better and better, like let me break that down for you. If this is the beginning of time, and this is us today, this right here, this right here, took place about right there. We like to think that this is ancient history. No, no, this ancient history right here. There was a woman who voted in the last presidential election whose father had been enslaved. Many of us in the room have done the work to find out where our parents and grandparents and their parents were enslaved. If we're getting better and better and better, how do we explain this? How do we explain that? What is that? That's a man's back. Who lacks a soul so much that they would do that to a man's back? We're getting better and better and better and better. How do we explain this? We barely, barely live in a time where there are still survivors of the Holocaust still alive. I live in Brooklyn, New York, which has the largest community of living Holocaust survivors anywhere outside of Israel. People who endured this are still alive. And if we're getting better and better and better and better, this right here, this took place like, this took place in terms of history, this was yesterday. This is a pile of shoes, because every human being that was marched into these camps, these death camps, all of their clothes and all their belongings and all this stuff was taken from them. And even after the camp was liberated, this pile of tens of thousands of shoes still remained. It's still there to this day. This is a recent picture. And sometimes I look and I stare and I wonder, whose foot belonged in this beautiful shoe? I look for little patches of color and just wonder, who saw that color and thought, I want that? Whose feet belonged in those shoes? If we're getting better and better and better and better, how do we explain this? This happened when I was in middle school. This is genocide in Rwanda, where a million people were hacked to death in less than 90 days. Very, they, they hardly even used guns, just machetes. This is at 
a Rwandan museum, to this day, throughout Rwanda, they continue to find skulls and fragments of skulls, and they treat them like sacred objects. For some entire communities, this is all that exists. Some entire groups and communities and towns were completely wiped out. And if we're getting better and better and better, how do we explain this? We explain it because this is how technology works, but this is how humanity works. And let me tell you what I know to be fact. I, I know for sure that we are not here right now. I cannot tell you for sure if we are here. I don't know if we're here and we're on our way down here. I don't know if we're here and on our way down here, but I can tell you for sure, we're damn sure not here or up here. And you know that to be true. We, we live in a deeply problematic time in human history. We do not live at a peak. If we lived at a peak, if, if we lived in peak humanity, that would mean today is the best day in the history of the world. Donald Trump is the best president in the history of the world. If, in fact, if you poll Americans, there are millions of Americans who literally said recently that they do believe that Donald Trump is the best president in the history of the United States. 20% 20, 20 of Americans say that. Even they even ask, it's a question, as a historian, it's a question to make, it, the question was designed to make people look dumb. The question was, who's a better president, Donald Trump or Abraham Lincoln? 20% of Americans chose Donald Trump. They believe it. Where are we? Who are we? We're not here. I don't know that we're here. My best guess is that we are at one of these peaks and we're somewhere on a downward trajectory. And then let me, let me speak kind words about Donald Trump, which I know you did not expect to hear on King Day. A lot of people want to put the, the whole burden of Donald Trump is a symptom of where we are. Now, he is simultaneously causing new problems and challenges, but he was elected because we were already on a decline. Last year, 102 unarmed, completely unarmed, nonviolent African Americans were shot and killed by police. 102. We said, Sean, I don't know if that's big or small. Does anybody know who this is? Oh, you do? Who is that? William McKinley. You, sir, are the fastest person to ever answer that question. <laughs> I love your, your presidential fact mind. It is indeed. Well, I have to send me my job Monday. Absolutely. One, one day I was at a middle school. What's your name? Name's Lucas. Lucas, one day I was at a middle school and I asked the kids who it was, and the kid, so bold and sweet, yelled out Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. I was like, no, no, son, no, no, that's not Jimmy Carter. That is, that is a man named William McKinley that very few people recognize or know, in part because he died in office. You would have to go back to 1901 in this country to find the last year that 102 African Americans were lynched. What is a lynching? If the lynching is not just hanging someone, lynching is when a person or group of people serve as judge, jury, and executioner. They were denied a right to a fair trial. They were denied, obviously, the right to uh, uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. 102 African Americans, unarmed, nonviolent African Americans, men, women, and children were killed by police last year. And you would have to go back to when William McKinley was president to find the worst year of lynching since then. That was last year. If we're getting better and better and better, how do we explain this? 
This is the United States state and federal prison population. This does not include jails, which is about a million additional people. It's just state and federal prison. That for most, now this goes to 1925, but we can take it all the way back to the 1600s. For most of American history, it stays under 200,000. Then you see in 1958, it goes, if you can see, it goes right above 200,000, and then what does it do? It goes back down. This is what a country's prison population should look like. Relatively steady over time. Let me tell you, like, let me tell you a broken, a lot of people will look at this and say, the criminal justice system is broken. This is what a criminal justice system looks like when it's broken, right here. It creeps above 200,000 and goes back down. That's broken. This is on purpose. It's very different. This can be explained away. This was built. This is not an accident. You could theoretically make an argument that this is a statistical accident, an anomaly. This was built. If we're getting better and better and better, how do we explain this? This is international rates of imprisonment. We're number one with 698. Number two is Rwanda. This is no, Rwanda's a rich, beautiful country, but that the number two country just emerged from genocide. There's the United States, and then number two is the country that just killed a million people. Many genocide experts would say, that means this is genocide. If we're getting better and better and better, if we've made America great, how do we explain this? We explain it because we are currently in a dip in humanity. We're not here. Not here, we're somewhere down here. I'll close with three thoughts about where we are. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is you can slowly creep down here and not even fully understand how you got there. This, this decline could be 50 years, maybe 10 years. And before you know it, you're in a place where you're saying, what, what just happened? They did what? Here's another difficult thing. It's easy to get down here and really difficult to get out. Last bit of bad news and I'll close with good news and we'll take questions. This dip, can last, this, let's see, this dip lasted 90 days. This dip lasted a decade. This dip lasted 400 years. That's what's scary about it. You go all the way here, What's frightening about the dip, you could be here for 90 days, you could be here for 10 years, or you could be here for 400 years. Here's the good news. There is no dip in human history that people did not eventually get out of. Every single dip has been confronted Generally, to get out, let's just go back. This, this, if you put this, if you reverse this, it's a dip, okay? This, it, it looks like an incline, but it's actually a decline. It's a decline in the quality of humanity to be incarcerated. We not only incarcerate more people than any country in the world today, right now, this day, 
We incarcerate more people than any country in the history of the world. All of human history, no country has ever had more people behind bars than we do today, right now. It's not even close. How many years will it take to get out of this? What did it take? What did it take to end this dip? Anybody know? To go war? What war? Go ahead, Lucas. No, man. Forget y'all. I don't know what Lucas has to say. <laughs> Lucas. World War II, my mom's dad fought in it. That's right. And my dad and my dad at it. And my dad was gonna have those who died in the Holocaust. Absolutely, my man. This is real life, right, Lucas? Real life. Yeah, and even other relatives survived. Yeah. The war. Let's what did it take? What did it take to end this dip? Hold on, Lucas. <laughs> um, well, another war. Which war, Lucas? Um, um, it rhymes with middle war, right? <laughs> yes, it does, Lucas. I like you, man. <laughs> it took, yeah. It's the Civil War. Students and faculty and staff and other people from this college fought in the Civil War. Illinois is strange. It's, you know, it's not generally thought to be a union state. Like people, when they think union, they don't think Illinois, but indeed. And there were students and staff and others from colleges all over the country who fought. It took wars. I said that to say that when you are down here, or better yet, when you are down here and the dip is so deep, it took World War II and the Civil War to confront those dips. I'm not saying that we need a war, by no means. I'm saying that we will probably need a warlike effort, warlike resources to confront where we are. I haven't even talked about global warming or climate crisis. Like, we, we are in a dip that will take the type of energy that it takes to get out of war. If, if we get out of here in your lifetime, it will be you that leads the way. Your president, your professors, myself, we will fight to get out of here, but I promise you the energy that it requires will take you. You will do more to get us out of here than those who are older than you. Like, it's gonna take you. And you have to ask yourself. It's a, it's, it's a question that I asked myself, particularly when I was a teenager and a student like you at Morehouse College, I used to ask myself, if I was in the civil rights, Morehouse is like a monument to the civil rights movement. Not only did Dr. King go to Morehouse, but so many leaders from the civil rights movement went to Morehouse or were mentored by people who went to Morehouse. And we have, we have literal monuments to the movement there. And I used to ask myself, wow, who would I be if I had been alive in the 50s or 60s? And many of us, we like to imagine ourselves as heroic characters in history. Truth is, most people were not heroes in the Civil Rights Movement. And I spoke, to, he's passed away, but I spoke to an elder of mine, this was back in 1999, and I asked him that question, like, who do you think, I asked him, like, who do you think I would be if I was alive in that moment? He told me, he said, Sean, it's really hard to answer that because the people who rose to the occasion aren't necessarily who you think they people who stepped out and did bold things and fought back. He said it, they were regularly the people that no one expected to do it. The people that were on that train were not necessarily who you would expect to be on that train. I've since come to think you can accurately predict who people would or would not be during the Civil Rights Movement. Because that was a dip. And we're in a dip now. And the greatest indication of who you be in the Civil Rights Movement is who you are right now. And if you honestly, earnestly, inspect your life and you're doing nothing to fight back against injustice, that's who you'd have been in the civil rights movement. 
Or if you're in the room and you find yourself fighting against justice, fighting on behalf of bigotry and racism and misogyny, that's exactly who you would have been in the 50s or 60s. So you have to ask yourself, what are you doing to get us out of the dip? And that's the most accurate prediction of who you would be at a different point in time. Listen, I know this is a serious presentation. I gave it because I think we're in a serious time. And I know in your heart and in your mind, you already know that. But this is an opportunity for you to begin thinking, what will you do about it? Will you live with mindfulness and awareness of the moment that we're in. We're gonna take some questions. Um, we'll take some questions from the audience. I don't know if you've already received paper. Uh, you wanna give some instructions? 